In a world of atomics, faster-than-light travel, and shape-shifting assassins, one man leaves his mark by a more traditional route. Playwriting. <laughs> Welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. I'm Abu. And I'm Leo. And Leo, yeah. today's a fun one because we are going deep. <laughs> yeah. It is a deep, deep cut today in Dune lore. Have you ever thought to yourself, I love Dune? Uh-huh. I wish I could learn about something that's not even remotely in Dune. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we are talking today about Hark Alharba. Mm -hmm. And Hark Alharba is a character who exists, I believe, exclusively in the Dune Encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was suspicious how big of an entry he has. Like, he has really, there's quite a bit about his life. Yeah. And I do find that. His life and his experience helps fill out the Dune universe in a way that is, it ties together a lot of themes that we see in the stories without maybe wrestling with like legends and gods and I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's kind of why we wanted to dedicate an episode to El Arba. I mean, he's referred to in the encyclopedia as the quote, dramatist laureate of the Atreidan period. Yeah. And it's fascinating to kind of take a glimpse into the life of someone who's sort of normal famous, right? Like we spend a lot <laughs> yeah. of the yeah. Dune novels with extremely powerful, extremely famous, extremely rich people, right? Right. Emperors and dukes <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and barons. I mean, we are spending a lot of time with just extremely wealthy, like cream of the crop, <laughs> 1% of the 1% people. <laughs> S-rank celebrities, yeah. Exactly, S-rank <laughs> celebrities. So it's really interesting to get a glimpse into the life of, you know, your normal, like, D-list celebrity, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll be talking a lot about this, but he really is sort of the Shakespeare of Dune. Yes. And very clearly, whoever wrote this entry in the encyclopedia was just kind of not exactly copying and pasting Shakespearean history to, to the Dune universe, but a lot of those themes are preserved. But that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Like, Shakespeare today wouldn't walk into a bar and get burdened by paparazzi. <laughs> right, be like, exactly. Guy's dressed weird. <laughs> yeah, famous guy, but not 1% of the 1%, for <laughs> right, sure. Right, But before we get into it, let's take care of some housekeeping, Leo. Totally. First and foremost, today is a sort of spoiler episode kind of yeah and what i mean by that is we will be touching on some light spoilers from only the first dune novel right so if you have read dune the first novel in the saga then you are perfectly okay today if you haven't read it yet and you are extremely sensitive to some light spoilers then you might want to finish reading that first novel and then come back and listen to this episode because a lot of alharba's life takes place after the events of the first novel. So we inevitably will be forced to reference some of those moments. Right. I mean, he's actually born 60 years after Paul is born. So 
kind of inevitably we have to talk about some of the events of Dune. Now, one week ago today, we launched our book club. Yes! So, if you are in that camp of, I haven't read the book yet, and you haven't stopped listening yet, check out our book club episode, and feel free to come along with us on this journey. We are reading through Dune, 100 pages approximately, at a time, and... What a time to read it. We will finish the first book before the movie comes out. So we're all ready to hop into those theater seats or nestle into our couch at home and enjoy this cinematic experience <laughs> fully tuned in to all of the fun Easter eggs that I'm sure we're going to be looking for the entire time we're watching that movie. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And and whispering into the ears of our neighbors at the theaters. Yeah. For sure. Uh, every person around us within <laughs> arm's reach. I'm going to yes. talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, as always, we love to hear from you. So a reminder, gomchabarpodcast at gmail.com is the best way to get in touch with us. Shoot us your ideas. Tell us what you thought of the most recent episode. Sure. And just say hello. Yeah. We love to we love to hear from you. Now, we should take a moment to say why talk about this, right? Doesn't appear in the books, doesn't guide the hand of fate across the spectrum of the human experience. We like these sorts of episodes because they feel to us, you know, you and me, Abu, kind of feels lighter. Yeah. And a, a kind of a break from the like super deep, super heavy spoiler-filled episodes. Plus, you know, I got my degree in art, and obviously... And how's that going for you, by the way? Is it... <laughs> we don't need to keep talking about this. <laughs> every time. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's so mean every time. <laughs> it's fine. I produce podcasts now. <laughs> but we're clearly, both of us, fans of literature and movies and shows and TV. And exploring and talking about the art, the music, the culture... That's in a universe. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. It can be interesting. It can be a wonderful peek into the lives of the characters that we love that we don't get in the kind of main plot. You know, we're always hearing about these assassination attempts. Yeah. We don't hear about the uneventful Tuesday nights when, you know, the assassination attempt was four days ago. And now you're just like, oh, I just need to relax and watch a show. What are you going to watch? What's the thing? You know? Right. I love that. I love those kinds of details, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And as we mentioned earlier, we were joking about Harkal Harba being a D-list celebrity. But <laughs> right, right. I mean, we, we really do mean it. Like, he's not a king. He's right. not a god. Right. He's not yeah. a Benny Jesuit with Jedi powers. <laughs> he, he's not changing the fate of any galaxy, right? right? He is a dude who liked to tell stories and he earned a living and made a name for himself that way. Yeah. And I think there's some value in learning about that, learning about sort of the quote unquote everyday person in the Dune universe, because we we really don't experience that in the novels <laughs> right, themselves yeah. or in the movies themselves. Again, we're spending time with some of the most powerful people in that galaxy. And it's nice to take a step back and spend our time with someone that, frankly, is a little easier to relate to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. He also didn't really start his career until his 30s. So he gives us hope. Yeah. He gives all of us hope. There's time, folks. 30 is not the end game, is what I tell myself as I fall asleep every night. <laughs> that that lesson became much more important to me in the last year or two. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's talk about it. Uh, who is Hark Alharba? And that's how I think his name is said. Yeah. Obviously, you'll see the spelling in the name of the episode. But 
That's what we're going to say. Hark El Harba, right? Right. We we can only do our best today. And, and look, longtime listeners know that pronunciation is not our strong suit. So <laughs> no. you'll, you'll probably hear us mis- mispronounce and stumble over that name quite a bit today. But who is Hark El Harba? Well, in short, he is one of the greatest playwrights of his day. Yeah. And after his death, he was actually considered an absolute master playwright of his time. Yeah, totally. And most notably, his plays were actually the best known accounts of that roughly century or so period after the events of the first Dune novel. So not only are his stories excellent and connecting with people in that time, not only are they memorable, but they are actually historical accounts in some sense of a part of human history that doesn't have a lot of accurate historical records. Yeah. No, it's totally true. I mean, and we see this in our world, right? That there are, of course, the farces and the comedies and the things that are very abstract, but there are a lot of dramas. You know, he writes a number of tragedy plays that, as far as I can tell from some some of the brief descriptions, are basically one-for-one accounts of the events of people's lives and Mm -hmm. what happened on that day and these sorts of questions and these sorts of stories that would be very helpful for historians in a period where a lot changed (laughs) between the first pages of dune and the last pages of dune but before any of that before he carved into history the stories of man he was born and he was not born with the name hark el harba not really uh kind of (laughs) (laughs) we'll get to it yeah So let's take a look at Hark El Harba's life from the beginning. Right. He was actually born with the name Aitu Sinoli? Cinoli? Sounds great both ways. (laughs) Yeah. Looks a bit Italian to me. So Aitu Cinoli was born in 10,246 AG on the planet Yorba. Right. Which, just to sort of orient ourselves and for context, is about 55 years after the first pages of Dune. Right. Because I think the first pages of Dune are... 10,191, right? AG. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get the name thing out of the way. So, I2 <laughs> yeah. Chinoli, which I feel much less confident somehow <laughs> yeah. saying than Hark Al Harba, <laughs> actually translates to Hark Al Harba in Fremen, right. in the Fremen language. Right. So, we were saying earlier he wasn't born with that name. It's true. He was born on Yorba, where they speak a Yorban dialect of Gallic, the sort of uh, effectively. English that we read in the books. Right. So he was born on that planet speaking that language. But what we'll see in a bit is he makes his way to Arrakis, where, of course, he establishes himself. And so he's known by the history books by his Fremen name, Hark Al Harba. And that's really going to be the name that we use for today's episode, because as much as we are not confident about its pronunciation, it's somehow far more comfortable to me than yeah i too chinoli i do chinoli i too right. chinoli i too mm. yeah so so guaranteed we're butchering both <laughs> of these this legendary playwrights names <laughs> <laughs> but we're gonna go with the one that we feel a bit more confident with yeah so al herba's father was actually a tailor cool a pretty well-known tailor yeah and his mother was a music teacher so 
again, talking about like these quote unquote normal people, the average person in the Dune universe. Right. That's a sort of shockingly mundane beginning. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. He is not a Duke's son. He is not an right. not a former emperor's <laughs> legendary son who lost the throne and wants it back. Like, he is just a dude whose mom was a music teacher and his dad made clothes. <laughs> I love it. There's no prophecies about him. There's no legends about him. <laughs> right. He's just an average guy. He's like, Dad, do you ever have dreams? And then the dreams happen exactly like you dreamed them. And the dad's like, nope, no, dude, I've got some pants to make. <laughs> right. Not right. once. <laughs> I do. Ginoli, don't you ever bring that up again. OK, you keep your dreams to yourself, kiddo. We're nobodies and we're going to stay nobodies. God damn it. <laughs> You're going to die nameless and alone, son. Back to my pants. Back to my pants. It's weird because, I mean, we don't know a lot about the first 20 years of his life, but I, I don't know. I think of his parents very fondly. Yeah. And I realize this is just because I like teachers. For sure. My, my mom was a teacher, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that his mother is a music teacher. I'm like, hell yes. I'm team Mama Cinoli, 100%. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully she chose a nice guy. They She settled down with someone. So I'd like to think that his parents are pretty dope. Mm-hmm. And- I, I do want to point out here quickly that his first 20 years of life are relatively uneventful. Again, keep in mind that almost all of Dune happens in the first 20 years of of Paul's life. Yeah. So that I2 turns 20 and like nothing really has happened in his life significant or worth talking about. I like to think that this is somewhat representative of the, you know, we talk about 13,000 inhabited planets in the in the Imperium. Yeah. Maybe Yorba is just one of those quiet, uneventful, chill planets that you or I would do totally fine living on. Right. I don't know. Seems like it if if you can go 20 years without an assassination attempt or <laughs> something traumatic. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, no one percenters here. It's just your average, <laughs> run-of-the-mill, middle-class suburban planet. Yeah, yeah, whole planet, suburban. <laughs> whole planet. It's a giant suburbia. <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare, actually. Just pants and music teachers. <laughs> <laughs> So what does Alharba do in his 20s, though, right? So he has these relatively uneventful first 20 years of his life with his right. hopefully idyllic, loving and supporting parents. Yep. But once he turns 20, he decides he wants to make something of himself. And so he actually leaves home, which is actually somewhat of a tradition on Yorba for children to travel in their 20s. So at the ripe old age of 20. <laughs> yeah. Alherba leaves home and he spends actually the next decade, he spends all of his 20s yeah. traveling between planets as, and, and this is a direct quote from the encyclopedia, as a quote, a salesman of mnemic film books for the Gwent Orloff Publishing House. So he's just traveling around the galaxy selling books. Yeah. Or movies or, or books. <laughs> It's a little film books. It's a film book. It's a movie novel. <laughs> what does that mean? Nobody knows. <laughs> Who's to say? It's sci-fi, you know? Right. I did want to say really quickly here, though, Mnemic Film is brought up in Dune multiple times. And yes, I don't know that there's going to be a better time to talk about what it is. So I did want to take a moment here. Mm -hmm. If you remember in Dune, the Harkonnens have this plot to make Duke Leto suspicious of Jessica as his betrayer in the Atreides household. And Fufir Hawat gets this report that a Harkonnen messenger had a note, and this is quoted from Dune, 
on mnemic film with the usual destruction capsule attached. And again, they get like a scrap of the note back, but that's literally the note is on the same material. And from the terminology of the Imperium in Dune, mnemic film is, quote, Shiga wire of one micron diameter, often used to transmit espionage and counter espionage data, as well as clearly film books. <laughs> yeah, and books, books you and, know, like your romance I, novels. Yeah, yeah. they're like <laughs> purely espionage and also steamy romance novels. That's the two things. Yeah, yeah. And Shiga wire, as a reminder, is, quote, metallic extrusion of a ground vine grown only on Seleucus Secundus and then this other planet, Three Delta Kaising, I guess is how you say that. Right. Which I just love that kind of how it all comes together. And I love that everything is kind of connected, you know, that minimic film is used for espionage and counter espionage, but also film books and also notes. And it's also made out of Shiga wire, which we only see in Dune when people are like bound and it's cutting into their flesh. It's just one of these most brutal materials that we see <laughs> and also comes from the home world of House Corino, the emperor before Paul. So it's all connected. It's cool. It's all connected. Yeah. I, I mean, like, yeah. that's one hell of a useful ground vine. <laughs> right. Use it for books. Use it to tie people up. Yeah. Use it for whatever it is you're doing on Gamont, you know? <laughs> Yeah. What a useful ground vine Shiga wire is. That's amazing. <laughs> I love it. You love to see it. Well, yeah. back to Alharba. He is traveling around the planet at this point in his 20s. Right. Selling these film books for this publishing house. And I mean, it kind of sounds like a pretty nice gig, right? You get to travel. Yeah. You get to, uh, you know, spend some time in the literature world. And as a fan of right. books myself, that honestly sounds like a dream. For sure. Yeah. And what he would do during this time, like his his sort of like day-to-day -day job, is he would go to a planet's local publisher, say, and he would try to sell reprints of Yorbin works. Right. Right. His home planet. Or like the rights for reprints, right? Distribution rights, right? Exactly. The distribution rights for Yorbin works from his home planet, from presumably this publishing company that he's employed by. Right. And then if he was successful, he would also look for the publishing rights for local works from that planet right. and bring them back to his own publishing house. So it was kind of like this trade negotiations situation with literature. He was literally trying to share. Right. The culture and knowledge from Yorba yeah. and sort of trade it for the culture and knowledge of other planets as well. It, it honestly sounds like a really fun job. It's also noted here that it's not an easy job. Like being good at that job was kind of tough because in addition to having the salesmanship of here's this piece of work from Yorba that you definitely want the right to distribute because it's the next big, you know, it's like yeah. the next Twilight or like the it, next... It's the next Game of Thrones, we promise. It's the next Game of Thrones. How many times has that been said in the HBO headquarters? <laughs> do you think? Every, Every day. fucking day, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you have to be a salesperson. But also, you know, once he does make a sale, once he sells some of those rights, he has to then read a bunch of local publications and make decisions like is this marketable? Mm -hmm. Like, is this going to do well? Right, right. And why? He, he has to have some of that, like, literature business acumen. Yeah, exactly. He kind of has to have his finger on the pulse of, like, what are people into? And what do I like? And what other people like? And the hilarious twist in all of this and what really catapults him out of this job 
is that a bunch of them are apparently not good. <laughs> like He's just reading these local publications going, this is kind of bullshit. This is bad. <laughs> How did these people get published? This is crazy. And he decides in the year 10,276, he's 30 years old, he decides, you know what? Fuck selling this trash. Like, these local works, get out of here. I'm going to write my own stuff. I can do better than that. Hell yeah. And where better in the universe to sell, to move, to make it big than New York City? No, the imperial capital, <laughs> Arrakis. Which, keep in mind, I keep wanting to say Kaitan is like the imperial capital. But no, by the end of Dune... Arrakis is the imperial capital. Right, right. So he goes there for the next 37 years of his life, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and look, you stole my New York City joke that I was going to make. But, <laughs> oh, it, you know, at, at age 30, he has this revelation, which I, you know, I'm hoping in the next few years, I will also have this revelation at age 30. <laughs> Waiting on it. <laughs> <laughs> but he has this revelation like, yo, I can do way better than these trash books that I'm selling. Let me go to the big city. And like he is chasing his big city dreams. Yeah. And I mentioned this earlier, like he's someone we can relate to. Like, yeah, I did the same thing after college. Like I was like, shit, I can do better. Oh, hell yeah. Let me go to the big city and chase this dream. So again, like he's such a relatable dude at this point in his life. And it's cool to see him transition out of this job where he is selling the the rights to these Yorbin works right. and realizing how bad they are. But he's also, <laughs> I'm sure, learning and picking up many skills in the literature world. Oh, totally. And I'm sure many of these skills and connections he makes in this decade that he spends traveling the galaxy very much come in handy for these next 30 plus years of his life where he strikes out on his own and starts making a name for himself. Oh, totally. So he makes it to Arrakis. And like anybody who's moved to New York in their 30s, mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't happen day one, right? Absolutely. Day one, you walk on stage on Broadway and you're like, here I am. You know, it takes time. So he has his first play, but it's not for a few years, right? Yeah. It takes him actually specifically four years right. to come out with his first play, which is called The Sand Rider. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. And again, look, the dude knows his audience. Yeah. He's on Arrakis. He's surrounded by Fremen. He's surrounded by the desert. And my guy comes out with a play called The Sand Rider. Like, of course, speak to your audience. Oh, hell yeah. So that, that actually comes out four years later after he moves to Arrakis in 10,280 AG. Right. And he actually kind of gets some good reviews for this one. Yeah. This play is met with uh, acclaim in Arrakeen, in the capital city of Arrakeen. And after that, I'm sure he got a bit of a confidence boost. I'm sure he, right. you know, those checks finally started to come in after four years <laughs> of like hanging out on people's couches. <laughs> yeah. And after the sand rider starts to gain him some traction, he then proceeds to really sort of start pumping out plays and uh, starts publishing new plays and new stories every two or three years for the next three decades. Yeah. I, I try to imagine those first four years like, finding a place to stay, working a job to, like, pay the bills. Yeah. I don't know if he had savings after his time working at that publishing house. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that book publishing, <laughs> even that far in the future, is going to pay much better than it does today. <laughs> yeah, so probably working <laughs> some jobs, you know. After that 
settling his life and getting to the getting to the actual writing of plays it's cool to see that he kind of consistently turns out that work and we'll talk about some of the plays that he published and we'll talk about some of those specifics yeah but to kind of continue talking about his life after those next 30 years in the year 10,313 so that's 37 years after he arrived on dune he retired uh, at the age of, I think, 67, I want to say, or something like that. Mm-hmm. He retired and left Arrakis. But during that time, during those 30 years, besides his works, like what else was happening in his life? Well, we don't know much. And I really wanted to highlight what we do know, because this, in a lot of ways, speaks to his status as sort of like a D-list celebrity. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't have paparazzi marking his every move. What apartment did he live in? Like, did he visit sieges? Did he himself meet people who rode worms? We don't know. We don't know a lot about his life. All that we have are like documents he signed and things that are in people's records, which is kind of true to our world, right? Yeah. What do we have if not for the marks that people have made on paper? <laughs> And in businesses and stuff. Right. What are we but the legal contracts we've signed through our lives? Yeah. The leases that I've put my name to. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. So what are some of these? Let's go through them. So first and foremost, we have a record of him. And this is wild, Leo. Like, you know, I want you to hold on to something and sit down. We have records of him opening a bank account. No. At the Bank of Arakeen. <laughs> it's so mundane. <laughs> <laughs> it's too mundane. I've heard they have the lowest APR in town, though. Yes. Like, they've got some, they've got a great credit card deal. <laughs> of course. Right. He'd be foolish not to open an account at the Bank of Arakeen. And in case anyone's <laughs> wondering, we are sponsored by the Bank of Arakeen. Yeah. <laughs> hear, hear more about that at the end of the episode. You'll get a thousand Solaris when you open an account. That's true. <laughs> Just use the code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in addition to this record of him opening this bank account right. at the Bank of Arakeen, lowest APR in town, <laughs> we also have this letter, apparently, that he wrote his publisher named H.H. Canadal. Something like, yeah. And it's basically a letter asking about royalty payments. Yeah. So there's a bit of a paper trail for Al Harba about his finances at this stage. And you can imagine as he's beginning to gain some popularity and his plays are becoming bigger and bigger, of course, so are the checks. Yeah, I love it. I mean, again, this is like one for one, the struggles of a young entrepreneur. It's <laughs> yes. just like asking about royalty payments. You know? Right. Why is my check late, H.H. Canada? <laughs> it's tough. I've got some spice beer I want to get. And, you know, it's expensive importing it from Carfic. You know, it's, it's expensive. Right. Rent in Arakeen is no joking matter. <laughs> no. Those payments got to come in. Imperial capital, folks. <laughs> now, in 10,295, when he was about 49 years old, there's a record of him. And I love this so much. I love this. I love this. I love it. He bought a half interest in an Arakeen restaurant. Yo! <laughs> Good job diversifying your income stream, my guy. Yeah. Hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Look, you cannot rely on just those royalty payments to sustain you for the rest of your life. Clearly. Your publisher's being weird about it. You've got to ask them (laughs) questions. Buy a half interest in a restaurant. It's amazing. Uh, I have so many questions that we don't have answers to, right? Like what kind of restaurant? Why did he not just buy it outright? Who was his business partner? Did he get free food at the restaurant? Like, I just want to know so much more about this part of his life where he clearly, I mean, he's, he's 49 years old, right? Right. 
it's pretty late in life to kind of be like, yes, I can run a restaurant now. <laughs> right. So like what prompted him to make this? Dis- I have so many questions about this. But it's, again, a small little mundane detail about the life of just a, this average guy. Like, of course, no one wrote about like what he did with his <laughs> restaurant. He's just an average playwright at this point in his life. I also I don't know that I ever considered that there were like restaurants in Arakeen. Which is dumb, because of course there are. Of course! Every type of industry is going to be there, especially after Paul takes the throne. Like, this is the imperial capital. Yeah. We hear later about souvenir shops and all these other mundane things we actually see in the books. So the idea of, oh, I love that Arakeen restaurant. Man, they've got the best spice rice wraps Mm. in town. You know, like, there's something so lovely about that. And for some reason, it's just a blind spot in my imagination. I never thought about that until I hear about this playwright buying a half interest in one. And you're right. He didn't even buy the whole thing. <laughs> he like <laughs> split it with a friend. He's being financially responsible. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Now, one other detail that we have from his life yeah. is that things weren't all just sunshine and daisies, right? Right. He had struggles throughout his career. And there's actually a record of him being involved in a plagiarism suit. That's true, yeah. Between an Arakeen playwright and another author from Seleucus Secundus. And Alherbo's role in this legal battle between these two authors and playwrights is to act as witness. It's incredible. It's so good. It's so good. But again, that's it. Like, what <laughs> happened with this? Who won that lawsuit? Like, what, what was his role? What was he a witness to? Right. I, I imagine there were some salacious details in this lawsuit. Right. Like, did he witness uh, an affair taking place? Like, is he on the stand <laughs> being like, yes, sir, that man cheated on his wife? <laughs> There's so much rich sort of blank space in Al Harba's life that is just waiting to be told on the silver screen. HBO, email <laughs> us. As we say every episode, this is the next Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> Al Harba's life, the next Game of Thrones. <laughs> Also, can you imagine being an intellectual property lawyer in Dune? Like, oh my gosh. You're on Arrakis. You know, there are sand riders. There are Fremen walking around, Chris knives on their belts. And you're like, yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, sure. But I have some big trials coming up and a lot of paperwork to do. And it's hot. <laughs> it's so hot and dry here. Yeah. You brought this up earlier. Like the restaurant thing. It's just so weird almost to think of the normal things happening in the Dune universe, the <laughs> restaurants that people are going to to eat, yeah. the the legal battles that are happening, the, the mundane jobs of just the lawyers, the doctors, the teachers, all the things that aren't literally Paul fucking Atreides, <laughs> the god, duke, yeah. you know, emperor of the universe, we don't spend time with. And again, Al Harba's life is the lens through which we kind of get small little peeks at these things at the, at the normal average person's life on Arrakis or the normal average person's life in this empire. It's really, really fascinating stuff that we frankly just don't ever see in the books. Yeah, you're so right. What history remembers of Al Harba is these documents that he signed, the works that he's left behind, his plays, right? Mm-hmm. The... <laughs> scandalous memory of him in trial going he slept with his wife and <laughs> that incredible moment in in history that basically been lost to time and apparently everyone's bank accounts at the bank of arcane i guess yeah it, it, it's wild i wonder if like 
Gurney Halleck had a Bank of Arcane debit card in his wallet when he yeah. was like out with the smugglers. I don't know. Right. Or, you know, when he takes the ladies out on the town right. to these Arakeen restaurants, is he using his like black friend of the Duke Amex card? Is he flashing <laughs> right, that right, to pay right. for dinner as like a flex? Made of like plastic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, you know, is he like, oh, my friend, the Duke's got it. It's cool. Yeah. This dinner's on him. Put it on the Duke's tab. <laughs> What an absolute flex when you're taking a girl out. That, that's awesome. The waiter's like, not again. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, my God. There is no tab, but I, I'm not going to send a bill to the fucking God Emperor. <laughs> <laughs> Duncan Idaho did that two hours ago, but I can't say anything. This sucks. Yeah. It, it, wild to uh, imagine just the, the normal everyday lives of some of these people. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break here, but stick around. We'll be right back. Now, we've talked a lot about Alharba's works and some of the moments of his life that have been remembered by history. Right. But what about the guy himself? What kind of person was Alharba? And again, we have to refer to very spotty historical records that are incomplete and can't be verified to some extent that refer to sort of his personality, the type of worker he was and the type of human he was. Right. So according to the encyclopedia, there are some now lost letters that claim that he was somebody who worked in solitude and almost never left his room or his house. He wrote these plays like completely sort of locked up yeah. in his room. And you can imagine, again, like that almost feeds into the classic genius writer playwright trope you know <laughs> yeah. like the the yeah. conflicted genius who doesn't know how to interact with people and can only write his masterpieces in in darkness in the, in the darkness of his room the shades closed but i do want to push back on this a bit yeah. because as we've discussed and as you and i know he spent a decade traveling to many planets and s literally buying and selling yeah it's true I imagine that dude knows how to interact with people like this is I imagine this is a part of history that is kind of playing up the fact that he's maybe this uh, kind of a recluse, this tropey, right, recluse genius writer. What do you think? Do you think these things are true about his personality? You know, there is something romantic about that. Yeah. The idea of that master who only emerges to deliver another incredible world changing piece to the, to yeah. the world and, and to be clear to our listeners that is how you and i operate yeah. i mean we listen. we completely lock <laughs> ourselves up and record these episodes and then release our masterpieces blinds fully drawn <laughs> hitch black room other than the glow of the monitor as i'm editing these waveforms i don't want to say that it's a masterpiece but listen look who are we to judge right <laughs> history will judge us Anyway, know of any good restaurants? I've been looking to buy half of one. <laughs> We're looking to diversify our portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. You could be totally right. You know, this is sort of people going, oh, yeah, I kind of knew the guy. Yeah. He was totally a recluse, you know, people wanting to seem significant after the fact, inventing these sort of like close friendships with the guy. But it's also possible he was. And it's possible he was only after arriving on Arrakis because it's actually suggested that his frequent space traveling in his 20s from planet to planet and, you know, you're, again, you're not on the finest highliners of the guild, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, light yeah. warping exactly to where you're going and then right. being first class. Yeah. Yeah. Chauffeured and you have a 
private chef. No, this is probably much more commercial, much more coach, <laughs> flying coach. And it's suggested that he actually was traumatized somewhat by these long months in space going from planet to planet, leaving him with literal agoraphobia. Wow. And when he then got to Arrakis, it's suggested that the way he kind of coped through that PTSD of being subjected to these unusual circumstances and going to new planets and the way he coped with that was using his writing as that coping mechanism. And whether or not that's true, it's totally possible. Again, this is kind of hearsay and speculation. It's totally possible he was traumatized and that was accurately talked about in letters. Whether or not that's true, what a peak into the challenges of the common man in an era of jumping planet to planet. Yeah. He's not the Kwisatz Haderach <laughs> going <laughs> to a thousand planets. And if he was, his father would not allow it. His father would not, is not here for it. He's like, what's that? Tomorrow? No, nothing about it. <laughs> don't want to know. Don't care. I just have some pants to sew. <laughs> you know, he's not the galaxy's most capable Mentat. He's just a guy. And you think about what does it take out of a guy to spend 10 years jumping planet to planet? Yeah. It's just a fun thing to think about. I don't know. It gives more depth to the world, in my opinion. Right. Right. And, and, you know, we can speculate all we want, but we won't know the answers to these questions because he was just a common guy. Right. And because no one wrote the comprehensive story of his life. Totally. Now, to sort of wrap up, actually, the story of his life that we do know as you mentioned earlier, Leo, in the year 10,313, at the ripe old age of 67, Alharba actually leaves Arrakis and he decides, I'm done. I've achieved what I set out to achieve. And he retires to an isolated home on the planet Phytus, where he actually spends the rest of his life. And he dies four years later in 10,317. Right. And that is basically the life of Alharba that we know. Yeah. He starts off as this child of tradespeople. He spends a 20 uneventful years before spending the next 10 as a salesperson for this mnemic film book publication. Right. And then eventually becomes this local acclaimed playwright at the heart of the imperial <laughs> capital in Arrakis. Yeah. And then finally, once he's achieved some level of fame and comfort, he decides to go retire in a quiet home. Right, right. And finally passes away. Honestly, kind of a fairy tale story. It's also interesting to me, he died at 71 years old, which is not super unusual. I mean, it's below average here in modern times. Right. But to the whole point we're making here, which is that he's not a duke. He's not the Padishah emperor. He's not, <laughs> you know, some crazy, powerful guy. We talk about the geriatric qualities of spice melange, right? We talk about how the spice extends life really dramatically. Mm -hmm. And someone might live to be 170 years old or 180 years old. Right. Dying at 71 is, I think, a pretty clear byproduct of him not having his life extended by spice consumption, which is a reminder that spice is fucking expensive. Right. <laughs> and spice is... We see it all the goddamn time in Dune because we're following the richest people on the planet. Yeah. But yeah. he is not one of those people. So right. he dies at 71 years old. And what a stark difference between that top 1% of 1% and this D-list celebrity Yeah, to have such a different amount of time in the galaxy. It's really kind of surprising, honestly. 
Yeah, completely. If I can try to make an analogy here. Sure. I don't know if you've heard that Bezos bought a yacht for his yacht. What? He did. Is that true? That is 100% true. You can go and look it up. Oh he bought God. a bigger yacht to store his smaller yacht. <laughs> and th- again, that sounds ridiculous to say, but now replace the word yacht with spice, right? <laughs> and that is us reading Dune. Right. We're just throwing around the word spice left and right. Yeah. But to the average person like you or me, Leo, a yacht is meaningless to us and probably will be for our entire lives. But Bezos is over here buying multiple yachts and (laughs) rich people are out here buying multiple yachts. And that's sort of, I think, the point that you're getting at is like spice is available to the richest and most powerful people in the galaxy. But potentially, if we can sort of speculate based off his 70-ish year lifespan. Right. Its life-extending properties are probably not available to the average person. Oh, totally. Yeah. And we really exactly. only interact with people in the Dune universe who have yachts for their yachts. <laughs> Alharba never had a yacht. <laughs> I mean, doesn't Duke Leto say, like, a handful of spice will buy a house on Tupil? Yeah. You know. That, that's a quote. That's a that's almost a word-for-word quote. Spice is fucking expensive. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk yeah. about his place. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then we'll talk about... The thing that we always have to talk about, which is haters hating the game. But yes, let's first talk about some plays. Yeah. So let's talk about some of his works. We hinted at them earlier, but we actually do know some of the things he is most famous for. So El Harba, across his almost 40 year career, wrote 21 plays or at least 21 plays in history are attributed to him. Right. And uh, I say that because we'll get to it later. There are some people who argue the fact that he wrote all 21. But we'll get to that. Sure. What are some examples of the plays he wrote? These are fun. We we don't have like the scripts of these plays, obviously, but we do have the titles of some of these. So just to sort of shout out some of these names, he wrote a play, a historical play called Shaddam the Fourth. Okay. That's cool. I wonder who that's about. <laughs> it's about Alia. <laughs> yeah. It's about Alia. He also wrote another play, a two-parter actually, called The History of Duke Leto. Okay, cool. I, I wonder what that's about. The second part's all about his beard, actually, which is really surprising. <laughs> right, just his, his beard care routine. Like, how does Oscar Isaac do it? And about five years later, he wrote a play called Souk, he said, which was a comedy. Uh, as a reminder, Souk is, uh, or Souk, Souk is the call of a water seller on Arrakis. Yeah. So I kind of imagine like a comedy of errors starring some hilarious water seller. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fun to imagine the things he might have written. Yeah. Uh, in 10,299, a little bit after that play, he wrote a drama, actually, which he named Carthage. Right. This, by the way, it kind of seems like a zigzagging sourcing of where names come from, but... Carthage is almost certainly named after Carthage, yeah, the yeah. Carcanon ruled capital of Arrakis, which is 200 kilometers northeast of Arrakeen, where mm-hmm. the Atreides family moves. And of course, then zagging back, Carthage is almost certainly named from Carthage, which is yeah. a city on Earth. So <laughs> yeah. there you go. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a little bit of historical zigzagging there. You're totally right. Now, another play that he writes is a tragedy. You you can tell that he dabbled in quite a few genres throughout his career. Right. He wrote a tragedy called The Arakeen Tarot. Right. And this is a 
clear and obvious reference to the Dune tarot decks that rose to prominence during Paul's reign as emperor and are referenced in Dune Messiah, the second book in the saga. Yeah. He also then wrote, to kind of wrap up this list, a number of historical tragedies about many of the characters that we know and love. You know, he has Stilgar's Dream. We have a play about Shani and we have a play about Hasimir or Fenring as his, as his last name, Count Fenring. Yeah. So these are really parallels to kind of the Shakespearean plays like Henry V. This is a playwright writing about characters of the time and the life and goings on of historical figures that are undeniably interesting. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason we know their names. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He's sort of cementing these people's names in Dune history, right? Yeah. Stilgar has his name now in a play, in a very famous play called Stilgar's Dream. What is he dreaming about? <laughs> Who knows? I would love to know. That would, that sounds like such an interesting play. But, of course, there are many others on that list. That's not all 21 plays that are attributed to his name. If you're interested, we encourage you to grab a copy of the encyclopedia and peruse those because they're all so fascinating. And, you know, you could write countless fan fiction. <laughs> totally. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just on the plays that Alharba wrote in his lifetime, just based off of the titles of his plays. Now, one small and sort of interesting detail here, again, we're looking at Alharba's life and works through a historical context. The encyclopedia is written many, many years after Alharba is gone, and he has sort of become this historical figure. There's a question, actually, of translation. Yeah. So Alharba was born on Yorba as we've established, which is a planet that used a dialect of Gallic. But he became famous on Arrakis, a Fremen planet, which uses a completely different language. And we talked about that in regards to his name and how his name translates to Alharba in Fremen, but his original name is different. There's a question of translation for his plays as well. We're actually unsure which language he originally wrote his plays in. Obviously, on Arrakis, they were performed in Fremen. Right, right. But does that mean they were written in Fremen? You you can imagine that after living so long on Arrakis, he would become fluent in the Fremen language. Yeah, four years before his first play, too. Yeah, exactly. So the question is sort of up in the air and we don't have an answer. But it is interesting to note that we aren't sure which copies of the plays that remain to this day are translations and which are originals that he wrote in his own sort of native language, whether he wrote them in Fremen to be performed in Fremen on the planet Arrakis, or he wrote them in Gallic and they were later translated to Fremen to be performed. It's disputed which is which, and we may never know what is original and what was translated. Right. Kind of another interesting note about the things that are lost to history. Yeah. And to kind of wrap up talking about his works and sort of the life he led, as the encyclopedia puts it, and this is a direct quote, Alharba's deep insight into humanity, his understanding of society and its virtues and vices, and above all, his profound compassion have made him a writer, not of an age, but for all time. Damn. Damn. Wow. Yeah. That's it's nice. It's a nice review. It's a nice Yelp review. For your, uh, that definitely would go on the back of the book. For sure. I hope that's how people remember our podcast, Leo. Oh. After we're gone. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Please. Please. For all time. Not podcasters of an age, but for all time. <laughs> so 
we've talked about his works. We talked about his life, his plays, and kind of whatever evidence we have of it. But there is a question. Mm. And in fact, there is the question. And this is mostly haters, but let's talk about it. Yeah. More than 300 years after his death, people began going, yeah, yeah, sure. Humble, average people have like definitely risen to greatness, you know. But could the son of a tailor and a music teacher really be as great as Al Harba clearly was? You know, could, is that even possible? And you know what? I don't think it was. I don't even think he was the same man. And this is one for one mm-hmm. a conversation that happens about Shakespeare, where people go, you know, I think it was a collection of writers or it was a pen name and someone else was writing it, you know. Yeah, totally. Similar to Shakespeare in that sense, definitely. Right. These questions basically about how could one person write so many influential works, right? How does this come from one average person too, right? He's not famous before this happens. And you'll always get questions like this and you'll always get haters who who sort of bring up right. this yeah. after, you know, someone as popular and influential as Al Harba passes away. I mean, 300 years after his death, people know as much about him as you or I do, Leo, right? <laughs> no one is around who remembers who what he actually was like or if he actually wrote the things he wrote. So these questions crop up. Right. Now, these doubters, in addition to questioning whether or not he could have even written all 21 of these incredible plays, are offering up ideas for who the quote-unquote true authors of these amazing works could be. And obviously, much more famous names of much more rich and powerful people are being thrown out there. Names like Farad and Carino or Count Hasimir Fenring himself are just like being tossed out as possibilities for people who actually wrote these plays or ghost wrote these plays or used Al Harba as just a pen name to write these plays. Right. And there's no way some average dude whose mom was a music teacher could have done all <laughs> right. of this. You know, it it kind of reeks of this like superiority complex. Which that doesn't even work, right? Fenring <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah. This is great. <laughs> Fenring died twenty years <laughs> before even <laughs> Al Harba was born. That's a crazy oversight. I, I guess this is three hundred years later, but still You'd think that would be a pretty quick Google search. Yeah. You know? Right. The timelines do not line up. Fenring could not have <laughs> written these. He was dead by the time I'll was... You can imagine how well constructed some of these arguments <laughs> yeah. are from the people who are doubting this, right? And obviously, our listeners can sort of tell from our tone of voice <laughs> yeah. what we think of these guys. But I-, I think it's at least worth hearing out the haters or at least pointing out some of this quote-unquote evidence that these people are presenting against Al Harba being this brilliant playwright in history. So there are a couple of points that they bring up right. as arguments for their case. Yeah. So we have, a, we have a couple of bits of evidence, if you want to call it that, Twitter <laughs> haters just trying to deny <laughs> mainstream media. So questions of his death, right? There are reports you know, whatever, uh-huh. maybe there are reports from a Freeman nabe that claimed that Al Harba actually died of an intestinal hemorrhage after a prolonged bout of drunkenness, which like, <laughs> yeah. I don't even know. The only alcohol we read about an Arakeen is the spice beer, which would be super expensive. Right. So I, I don't know. I'm punching holes in this right away. I think that's just people going, ah, he's a drunk. Right. What does that even have to do with his works? I don't see this holding any water. 
right? Which is a bad idiom to use for Arrakis. You know, this isn't a still suit, doesn't hold water, right? <laughs> uh, the other one here that I wanted to mention are claims about his physical deformities. Okay. Which I have mixed feelings about this. Claims about his physical deformities. An actress who said it was hard for her, quote, to accept that such a poetic mind could be trapped inside such a hideously deformed body. Okay. Yeah, okay. Now, first of all, this sounds like someone with pretty privilege who just doesn't understand that the average dude doesn't look like a model. Okay? Right. Another thing that comes to mind, I kind of do like how this would mirror Holtzman. You know, this idea of a brilliant mind trapped in a right. unconventional body. Yeah. But he's a salesperson. This is a dude who had to go places and can, I don't know. I Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. How is this actress the only person to bring up any physical features if they were so obvious, right? So obviously, like, quote, hideously, hideously deformed, deformed, right? <laughs> like, it, he spent a decade yeah. traveling. Other people would have brought this up, right? Right. Why is only one person bringing this up if it's such a major part of his physical features? Again, it's so easy to poke holes in some of these arguments. And uh, these first two arguments that you've mentioned are such clear, just character assassinations. Like, what does this have to do with his work or his career? It sounds like people who are like, want to be more important because they were close to this famous person, you know? Yeah, yeah. People who are inflating their own importance by going... Oh, yeah, I went to dinner with him all the time, and man, he was hideously deformed. <laughs> and you're like, really? Because I haven't heard that from any of his other friends. I mean, no one else. And I've seen him. He's fine. <laughs> he's like a solid seven out of 10. I don't know. He's, right. he's got a nice jawline. Yeah. I don't know what look, you're talking I, about. You know, not all of us can look like Dev Patel or live up to the Hassan Minaj looks or be as ripped as Kumail Nanjiani, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm, I'm just I'm just an average looking brown dude. Like, <laughs> I cannot live up to those, like, godlike expectations. And I like to imagine that, like, Al Harba was also just an average looking dude making his way through the world. You know what? You're right. I am hideous, hideously deformed compared to <laughs> Kumail Nanjiani. <laughs> right, right. If Kumail Nanjiani and Dev Patel Gosh. are the bar that you are measuring me against, yeah. then yes, okay. I am also hideously, <laughs> hideously deformed. deformed and I can understand how you would be unable to accept that such a poetic podcast mind could be trapped inside my body. I, okay. Like, if that's the measure, if that's the scale. I'll change all of my online profiles right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Clearly, we've poked some holes in that argument. <laughs> Let's go over these last two arguments that these yeah. folks have. Yeah. This third one is actually really interesting and quite specific to the universe of Dune. Hmm. There are accusations against Al Harba for being too much of a computer enthusiast. Okay. Relatable. And you can sort of understand where that comes from. <laughs> yeah. First of all, relatable. Like, I look at screens <laughs> yeah. all day. Love it. Yeah. I get it, my guy. Same. Yeah. I'm an enthusiast. <laughs> but you can you can understand why that sort of argument would come up in the Dune universe. If you know anything about the history of the Butlerian Jihad, right. if you know how much people distrust technology and particularly advanced technology in the Dune universe, yes. Like, if you want to tarnish someone's reputation accuse them of loving computers too much yeah of going against the laws of the great convention and using technology or you know relying on technology too much like this is again kind of 
goes into that uh, character assassination fold of just, <laughs> he was a bad guy. How could he do such great things? Yeah. It, it's both like general and very specific, sort of like Salem, you know, accusing someone of being a witch just because you don't like him. Right. <laughs> You're like, I hate that fucking guy. I bet he's a witch. <laughs> right, right. It feels very similar to me. Yeah, definitely. Now, the final argument that the encyclopedia brings up sure. is actually quotes from his fellow playwrights, I guess. Sure. Who eventually came out and said that he was actually, quote, a brainless clod. Okay. That's just that's just jealousy. Jeal- exactly. Right? Like my instant 100%. reaction to this is like, oh, cool. You're you're shitting on your competitor. How are you a reliable source? And the guy who won? Right. Yeah. Not only your competitor, but the guy who is outshining you and getting the acclaim and the money <laughs> yeah. and, and the and the fame that you yeah. so desperately desire. Of course you're gonna be jealous of him. This one I feel like we can just immediately throw out. Oh, totally. Yeah. It is extremely clear that all of these claims to some extent reek of jealousy and are people who are simply grasping at straws long after, you know, 300 plus years after his death. And in fact, many of these claims, like the Fremen Nabe claiming he died from a hemorrhage after being too drunk, many of these claims are just either outright discredited eventually. Right. Or they come from such dubious sources that like any historian (laughs) or any Dune scholar like you and I, Leo, would be just foolish to believe them. These are not reliable sources. Just like Alex Jones. Is that his name? Alex Jones? Yeah. Right. Alex Jones is saying. The frogs are gay. (laughs) And you're going, yeah, I I think this source can be discredited. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We don't need to write this part down. It's fine. Totally. The encyclopedia at the end of the day sums it up kind of nicely, right? Everything we're talking about. So in sum, the Al Harba question is a question only in the minds of those clouded by snobbery, delusion, hero worship, and ignorance of Atreidean literary history. No professional Harbin scholar has ever, I love that Harbin scholar, <laughs> has ever lent it credence, and for good reason. There is more evidence that Hark El Harba wrote the plays attributed to him than for the works in existence of Virgil, Rabelais, Milton, McCartney, Shumwan, Astiki, Carnwald, and a host of others put together. That is a list of names. <laughs> uh, yes. So again, to summarize, no one of any academic validity is looking at this going, this is viable you know they're saying right there was more evidence for him being real than for almost any known other playwright put together yeah completely <laughs> and you know what on that point actually leo sure i wanted to end today's episode yeah on kind of a fun thought exercise okay yeah imagine it's 300 years after our deaths we've lived long wonderful lives as podcasters we've gained a certain level of acclaim mm-hmm. and it is now 300 years later what dubious claims do you hope that people make about our lives and our works long after we're dead oh my gosh (laughs) man okay i actually really do like the idea of authorship being questioned because there's something mystical about that you know how banksy could be like a collective of artists Ooh, i think that's really quite cool and honestly it makes the individual the real individual that much more mythical it makes them more kind of 
legendary in that sense. I love that. That Al Harbo was questioned, his history was questioned, makes him that much more of this sort of incredible monolith in history. So maybe that, but I also really like the idea of just people going, did you hear Leo never slept? (laughs) Do you hear he didn't sleep ever once? Isn't that crazy? Not a single, he was born as a child. His eyes never closed from the moment he was born until the moment he died. Wild, you know? I feel like something like that would be really kind of fun to have people claim about my life and then scholars go oh, we have pictures of him with his eyes closed he couldn't take a selfie to save his life half of the photos of him he has his eyes closed <laughs> <laughs> right the dude was a huge napper he was napping all the time like what are we what are you talking about napped around friends like so rude confirmed napper from multiple sources <laughs> confirmed it's canon <laughs> he napped so uh, i do I, that's kind of where my head goes what about you I actually love the point you brought up of that Banksy example, this idea that people 300 years after our death may question if we were even real. Yeah. I mean, it's a little tougher with podcasts because our voices are on these. And I like to think our personalities are fairly consistent episode to episode. (laughs) Right. Sure. So it's hard to argue that we are not us. Yeah. But as we joked a few episodes ago, many of our listeners will spend their entire lives Never seeing who we are. Right. Never even realizing that we are people. That's true. Yeah. And the question may arise 300 years after our death. Were we ever people? You know. Or were we advanced artificial intelligence met, developed by Google <laughs> to talk about Dune? Weirdly specific. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Wait, wait. What would a human say now? Uh, uh, um, n- no, I watched Rick and Morty. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I, too, watch Rick and Morty. Ha, ha, ha. I love human food. Ha, <laughs> yes. My favorite human food is microchips. Um, Bread. <laughs> microchips. <laughs> sea salt and vinegar. Microchips. I mean chips. <laughs> oh, I love that. So that's that's all I want is 300 years after my death. For people to think I was actually an AI. I love to eat ram. I mean, yams. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to come up with a million examples of a robot. Hold on. There's got to be way more. (laughs) I eat lots of human food. I take gigabytes of it. Oh, I mean, just bites. (laughs) I take normal human bites. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on lordparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. Thank you for li- li- listening. <laughs> listening. Pat. Listening. Path. Listening. 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 Got a reboot, Abu. Let <laughs> <laughs> me just one second. Refresh. Okay. <laughs> Sucks. Leo's been running low on RAM too recently. It's... <laughs> Gotta feed him more yams. <laughs>